You're busy. We get it. Listen on the go to Farm Journal Intel Podcast, the latest insights from our webinars and content streams to inform and inspire your way of life. Today, we're featuring the session Predicting Chaos, Weather Risk in Production Agriculture from the August 26th Farm Journal Field Days. Meteorologist Eric Snodgrass will share the weather forecast for the upcoming harvest, as well as what's ahead in South American weather. Will a warm trend continue? Will precipitation inhibit a speedy harvest? Gain valuable weather insights for the months ahead. All right. Good morning, and thank you for uh, giving me a chance to talk to you again this year about the growing season weather that we are currently dealing with, and uh, I'm excited to uh, to give you this talk today. You know, the last couple of days, I got a great opportunity to hear uh, Dr. Dave Cole speak, and when thinking about Dr. Cole's, uh, when thinking about Dr. Cole's presentation lately, um, I've, I've been noticing he's talking a lot about black swans and dirty birds, and uh, so in, in today's talk, I decided to uh, toss in my own version of this. So I'm a, I'm a product of the 1980s. So Dr. Cole, uh, I know you're not watching this morning because I know you're busy, but I'll tell you something. Uh, this is what I think of your black swan right here. So and one of my favorite games, Duck Hunt, uh, all these, you know, shoot these birds out of the air here. We've had a very interesting year so far. And what I'd like to do is talk about it. So we're going to do this relatively quickly. We're going to kind of plow through what the growing season has given us so far. And they're going to be talking about what we expect over the next few days and a few weeks. We'll talk about harvest weather, get a quick sneak preview of winter. We're going to talk at the very end about some international weather pressure. So given that as our backdrop, here is the latest dirty bird. This is a pretty amazing satellite animation here uh, of a pretty powerful tropical system that is moving through uh, part of the Gulf of Mexico here. And early this morning, this particular system had reached uh, category three in intensity. We're going to come back to talk more about uh, this particular hurricane named Laura here in a few minutes. But before we get there, I'm going to give you a quick uh, rundown of what this growing season has given us. You see, what was interesting is going back and starting in May, the beginning of this growing season was one where we began uh, with the weather patterns I think we wanted to see back in winter. What was it? It was cool. I mean, if you just kind of take a look here, so much of the United States and the Canadian prairies started off with a relatively cool May. In fact, if you remember going back to that time period, we had between May 9th and May 10th, a pretty nasty cold air outbreak that hit the eastern part of the Corn Belt. Some places here spinning up to 20 hours below freezing on the mornings of May 9th and again on May 10th. This uh, really was quite a shock to the Eastern Corn Belt. But notice, as you get back into Illinois and Iowa up into South Dakota, there was a region in through here that largely missed out on the damaging effects of this particular uh, frost event. But when we put it all together, another way to look at it is by looking at something called cumulative downward solar flux. This is essentially where we go and we look at um, how much sunlight made it uh, to the ground. In other words, through the, the cloud cover and to the, to the surface. And what I want you to see here is that even though this crop was planted very quickly here in the heart of the Corn Belt, uh, especially in Iowa, some places in Iowa planted the fastest pace they planted since 2012. Well, the sunshine really didn't get down to the ground to really make this crop jump out of the ground very quickly. But one of the things we have to take a look at here in addition to the sunlight and the temperatures is what we got in terms of precipitation. So my last figure is to show you this. Now, unlike 2019, 
2020 had much more regular precipitation across the primary corn and soybean belt. It was extremely wet in parts of the mid-Atlantic getting into the Carolinas and also right down here in parts of Arkansas um, uh, getting up to Missouri, Kansas, and Oklahoma. Now, from that particular point forward, let's see how things transition once we got into the month of June. This was a day I think I'll never forget. We had two separate low pressure systems. There was one here on the border of Illinois and Iowa and a second one here that was moving through parts of Kansas after going through Nebraska. They had two entirely different origins. One was tropical storm Cristobal that came up out of the Gulf. The other one was coming here out of the Canadian prairies, but combined, they produced some incredibly strong winds during this particular time period. Just to show you, you see the map in the background there illustrates um, how hyperactive this hurricane season has been, but it got going early. Cristobal started right here in the Yucatan and went straight through here between Missouri, Illinois, Iowa, up into Wisconsin before finishing up near uh, the, the, the Hudson Bay. And on its way through, take a look at this next image here, bringing a lot of precipitation and cloud cover to this section of the country, but on the back side, turns out that the non-tropical low on the backside was much stronger. You see, we were dealing with early season drought issues and fire issues in parts of New Mexico. And on the winds that came racing around the southern side of this system, we saw a huge dust plume that gets it got pulled across the southern plains here with sustained winds that were 40 to 60 miles an hour. Now, that mid-May to mid-June time period was one of the windiest such 30-day time periods we have on record uh, for that particular part of the year. And you can see here from mid-May through mid-June that this corridor that I'm kind of highlighting right into the midsection of the United States averaged a daily departure from normal of 6 to 10 miles an hour in terms of wind speed. Now, I know that may not seem like much, but to average that over an entire month, that's a very, very high anomaly. Now, just to show you the effects of this, I got a great video here of this guy who attempted to pour himself a beer with a 40 mile an hour steady wind and uh, not much of that beer getting into the cup there. In fact, I think at the end of this, he just kind of loses uh, the cup there entirely. And I also saw this one out of Kansas, uh, one of those really windy days here. We actually had what I thought was a round bale of hay rolling across the road there. I've never seen that, but it turns out as you get a little closer, you can see that this is some sort of water tank or some other holding tank. Very, very windy, which made our June application time period in the midsection of the country very challenging. Now, speaking of those winds, take a look at this map. This that I'm outlining right here was a massive dust plume that came off of Africa. We could see it from space. Look at this from the International Space Station showing you just how dirty and dusty the air in the over the Atlantic was. As it came to Puerto Rico, this is how things looked when the dust extent was at a maximum in Puerto Rico. This is how things look normally down there at the bottom. And as that dust moved across the open Atlantic, it settled into the southern United States first and then pushed, as you're going to see here, into parts of the Central Plains, into the Corn Belt, and eventually over into the eastern part of the United States. When thinking about this particular um, dust plume and its ability to, uh, you know, kind of extinguish the sunlight, this is one of the most optically thick dust plumes that we have on record. And I got to ask myself, well, is there anything good about it? Because we knew that a lot of things were dusty here. Well, it turns out when you look at the mineralogy of a dust storm like this, what comes off of Africa, off of the Sahara, which, by the way, about 80 million tons of dust blow across the Atlantic each year, and some of that gets all the way here to the United States, well, most of it is made of clay and feldspar. So no good mineral content for our crops. It's just making things really dusty and it was quite dry for a time period in there. When June finished, take a look at the difference here. By the time we got to July the 1st, this area in through here 
went almost on the exact opposite of what we had in May. Abundant sunshine, big time heat that stretched from the Four Corner States to the Great Lakes States. And it was cool only here in the Southeast and cool in the Canadian prairies. Important to see that. You can imagine that our solar flux uh, graph, which is shown here, showed a lot of sunshine inside that area as well. So the crop really jumped out and took off. But the most important thing that we have to look out for in the month of June is where did the precipitation fall? Now, if you can get a drier and warmer and sunnier June and you're growing corn and soybeans, those conditions, believe it or not, dry and warm are very good for the health of the corn and soybean crop. What we then have to have, though, is plenty of rain in July and plenty in August to help those crops finish. Well, what were we concerned about? Well, that one area that was super wet right in through here in May turned over very hot and dry. Our drought that was across the four corner states into Texas and up the high plains got worse. We started to see drier conditions showing up in parts of Michigan. Indiana, Ohio, and also this pocket of Illinois. But there was a lot of concern coming out of Nebraska into western Iowa about the drier conditions that were showing up in that region. Well, once July got here, it got here with quite a lot of vigor. This is one of my favorite images from this past year. This was out of the National Weather Service out of Grand Forks showing you this, this up-close view of a powerful tornado. It actually had two separate senses of rotation, the main tornadic vortex here, which was uh, vertically oriented. But you notice right over here, there was a horizontally oriented vortex as well. Incredible to see that. Our friends in Canada were dealing with a lot of severe weather as well. This was up in Calgary, just one of the many large supercell thunderstorms that spawned several tornadoes, but also a lot of hail. And if you notice right here, you can see very clearly one of the hail fall streaks uh, out of this particular storm, but also the mamatis on the backside of this, just a beautiful cloud formation there. I think the most impressive tornado intercept of the year goes to Michael Martz. He was in Minnesota and caught this one. As he looks up here, you can see this powerful rope tornado that's just drilling into this soybean field, doing a lot of very local damage. But you can see here, it was not very wide at all, this particular tornado. And I think the most photogenic tornado of the year, though, goes back to Canada. In Manitoba, uh, this impressive supercell on the back side of it, almost crystal clear cloud edge there, showing what we call an elephant trunk. That's the kind. Uh, that's what we call tornadoes like that, just drilling once again into the ground. Now, when you think about this this past year, hail reports across the United States below average, tornado reports, despite April being one of the most active tornado months on record, for the rest of the year, tornado reports across the United States below average. Where we were above average was with those severe winds. We're going to talk about them in just a few minutes. But here we go. This is where July finished in terms of precipitation. So the figure you're now looking at by climate district ranks on a 128 year record where we were. So if you're closer to one, that would be the wettest, 128 would be the driest. The concerns were in Iowa and sections of the Eastern Corn Belt. It was getting hot and dry in the Southwest and there were pockets over here in the Mid-Atlantic through the Carolinas that were dry as well. Other places filled in with rain, as you can see here with those cooler colors indicating more precipitation. Here's the other part of this. During the month of July, we had some cooler air that came in here repeatedly, and the Corn Belt did not see long duration heat stress. We got some warm ups, uh, temperatures got into the 90s, but they didn't stay there for more than a few days. Where was it consistently warm? Well, paint the corners of the United States here. You can see that in parts of the Northeast and in the Southwest, those were our warmest spots.
Now, of course, the biggest event that we've seen here in a long time in the Corn Belt happened back on August the 10th. This is out of the National Weather Service of Chicago showing you a kind of a snapshot from 8 a.m. in the morning all the way to 7 p.m. that evening of the powerful derecho event that went from the Dakotas through Iowa into Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, and eventually over into Ohio. Seeing an animation on radar, you can see those storms early in the morning. They're coming out of the, the border of Nebraska and Iowa, and then, excuse me, Nebraska and South Dakota. But as you now See, they raced through Iowa into Illinois, over into Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio. Just an impressive squall line of storms here, the likes of which we had not seen since 2011. Well, when you take a look at a particular storm system like this, let's cut it in half. This is a cross-sectional view. And the front edge of the storm is defined by where all the air goes up. If the storm is moving to the right on this image, that's to the east in this case, what you have to look out for is the back side of the storm. That's where the main downdraft is located. And in these particular storm systems, they have a feature called the rear inflow jet. That's where the back of the storm comes racing toward the front of it with this downdraft. It then slams into the ground, races out ahead, and produces a very telltale sign that these storms are capable of producing severe winds. So that back-to-front flow as it races out under the storm produces a shelf cloud. And this is what one looks like. This is one out of Wichita, Kansas, just a week before the derecho event went through Iowa. Now, this particular shelf cloud, whenever you see one, just remember that it is all bark and no bite. What I want you to do when you see one is get out your cell phone, take a picture of it, email it to eric.snodgrass.nutrient.com so that I can put it in a presentation. And then you got about five minutes to get inside because the rest of the storm is going to try to kill you. You're either going to get electrocuted, you might get drowned with some very, very strong, uh, sorry, very, very heavy rain, or you're going to have some strong straight line winds. And yes, these types of storms can even produce small tornadic circulations as well. Well, let's take what we just learned and apply it to some radar imagery. Over here on the right, this is the radar image as the storm system just went through Davenport. Now that shelf cloud sits right out here. The main line of storms is behind it. And the gap between the white and black lines I just drew there, that's the five minutes you've got between when you see that shelf cloud and when the nasty part of the storm gets there. But remember me talking about that rear inflow jet? Come over to this image over here on the left. That is the Doppler part of the Doppler radar. It gives us what we call the radar radial velocities. We can measure wind speed. And what I want you to see here is about a thousand feet above the ground, racing in from the backside of the storm was the rear inflow jet, moving at speeds between 100 and 130 miles an hour. And when it slammed into the ground, well, you all saw lots of videos like this a couple of weeks ago coming out of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, just complete destruction here as these straight line winds at times topped 110 miles an hour. You've all seen lots of pictures like this across the state of Iowa uh, as well. And I want you to remember something. As the corn crop does get harvested, there was a lot of on-farm storage and local elevator storage that was destroyed by this. So that's just another aspect of the damage of this particular system. Now, when it was all said and fin uh, done here, I calculated as about 700 miles from west to east. The average storm speed was 55 miles per hour. Now, that does not include the gusts, which we saw several of them getting up above 90 to 110 miles an hour. In total, there were 500 reports of severe storm, uh, severe uh, winds out of this, 15 reports of tornadoes in northern Illinois and hail all along the way, especially in parts of southern Wisconsin. 
When you look at this satellite imagery, what I want you to see here is the discolored parts. And over the next week or two, we're gonna to start to see these particular pockets show up with more crop damage by looking at the NDVI imagery. And we'll be able to see a major color uh, discoloration there that'll give us a better estimate. But my current estimate is somewhere around 8.5 million acres that was destroyed. Yes, I know that I am on the, the lower end of that number, uh, but uh, several other reports here are much, much higher. Some approaching up to 14 million acres that they think were destroyed. But my estimates here based on satellite data at 8.5 million. This is a significant portion of our crop that was destroyed uh, by this particular deratio. Just for statistical value here, 2020, which is the blue line, currently sits as the third most active year on severe wind reports, sitting only barely behind 2008 and 2011. By the way, 2011 at this particular time had already had about 10,000 more reports of severe weather, excuse me, severe winds across the United States. One other thing to remember here, one of my former students, Corey Gaustini, has done a lot of research with this. And what we find is that through the month of August, even in September and October, this is the most common corridor for having more of these straight line wind events. So we're not done with this just yet. This is the time of year that we do get these powerful squall lines moving across the country. So with the first 15 minutes devoted to what we've seen, my last 15 minutes are going to be devoted to what we're going to get. And when it comes to forecasting the weather in 2020, it was a challenge. You know, each year as we begin to forecast, we, we set out with a plan. And it's a well-designed plan that we want to execute. We want to continue to see the things that we've designed unfold. For example, in a little bit different scenario here, but one of my favorite videos is of this dump truck that you see over here on the left. You see the designers of that dump truck had a well-designed plan, uh, and it was to pick up the can as you see here, dump the can into the truck and then set the can back down. But sometimes well-designed plans don't work very well. And in this particular year, the one thing that didn't work very well for our forecast was the La Nina played second fiddle to the MJO, the Madden-Julian Oscillation. So as a result, so much of our forecasting this particular summer was kind of thrown off and didn't work the way we wanted it to because of that one subtle difference. So what I often feel like when I forecast the weather is this guy right here, the ball boy, right? Throws the ball to the tennis player. The tennis player then gives him back the ones he doesn't want. And the job is just to collect them and then they go running back to your spot. This particular guy had a well-designed plan, but as you saw right there at the very end of it, by the time he got to where he needed to be, let's watch it again a few times, just gets tripped up at the last minute and smacks his face into the wall. And we can watch this dozens of times because it's really kind of funny here. But you know what? What we have to do is we have to just get right back up and keep going. And that's what the guy does. Turns around and smiles, pretends nothing happened and keeps going. That's been weather forecasting for 2020. So let's get into it. Are you ready? This is what the first 26 days of the month of August have looked like. It has been extremely hot in the Southwest, but up until just this last couple of days, we've been relatively cool in the midsection of the U.S. It's been hot in the Northeast. It's been hot in the Canadian prairies. It's been hot in Florida, but we've had this cooler swath of air in the midsection of the United States. By the way, just got to show you a picture I found last week. I have to call the folks at Accurite and say, hey, you need to start making your rain gauges out of better material because this particular one out of here in El Paso, Texas was under so much heat, it began to melt. Now, speaking of melting, back, uh, let's see, this was about a week and a half ago, coming out of um, Death Valley, they hit a max temperature of 130 degrees. On that particular day, 7% humidity in Death Valley with a nice northwest wind at two miles an hour. Now, 
If you want to go visit Furnace Creek, there's a Furnace, uh, excuse me, there's a visitor center there, and you can get your picture taken out in front of the outdoor thermometer. To be honest, if I had to uh, show you this picture of this couple, I, I kind of resonate with that guy. Can you tell how he's like, are you seriously making me stand outside and take a picture? And she's like, yeah, we're going to go and put this in our scrapbook too, so get used to it. Well, anyway, extremely hot weather down here in parts of the southwestern United States, and it's led to a lot of fires. This one a couple of weeks ago here showing you the massive pyrocumulus clouds that are forming on some of these fires in parts of California. And what was incredible was that up in a fire near Reno, Nevada, but on the California side, we actually saw uh, one of these um, uh, particular fiery vortexes here extended in a full tornadic circulation. And several of these appeared uh, here in this part of California. So imagine you've got the heat of the fire, the rotation of the atmosphere, bringing in what looks to be here a giant tornado that is full of extreme heat from this fire. Just a devastating event that is set up in parts of California. So from there, I just want to show you a snapshot a few days ago of how bad the smoke was in the western United States. And in the Central Valley of California, it was very difficult to breathe some of the worst air quality conditions they'd seen. And as we look forward into our forecast here, you can see that that smoke is spreading to the east. Many of you last night, I hope you got outside and took a good look at the sunset if you're here in the eastern part of the Corn Belt or in the Great Lakes states because we had a very, very hazy evening and it gave us some very interesting colors in our sunset. You might be able to see that again tonight. So what about precipitation? This is where things get, I think, most important in our forecast. Can you see that through the first three weeks of this month, there's a corridor in through here that has been extremely dry. And some of those locations here are having a top five driest uh, August on record. Now, of course, your eye is drawn to the extreme drought that is in the western United States, but you can also see over here in parts of the eastern Corn Belt, things have been very dry as well. The flip-flop was in the Carolinas in the mid-Atlantic. After a super dry July, it's been very wet there, and coming up very soon will be a powerful tropical cyclone called Hurricane Laura that's going to come right through this area, really bringing in some very heavy precipitation. Big questions loom, though. Will we be getting any needed rainfall into this particular area? Now, with the forecast of some heavy rainfall south of this area, just a quick public service announcement. Remember what the National Weather Service says, turn around, don't drown, okay? I want to make sure that you do that because while we watch the heavy rainfall coming over this soil, and of course we need it here, I do need to show you that over the last seven days, that pocket that the heaviest rainfall is going to be coming through has been very dry. Where has it been wet? Well, tucked into that ridge out west. See all the storms running around it? Coming through parts of the northern plains, we've had some big storms. But other than that, it's going to be east of the Mississippi, south of the Ohio. That's where we've had our heaviest rainfall. So I told you that turnaround, don't drown saying, because of all the heavy rain that's coming right through through where that arrow is, just remember, sometimes the road washes out beneath you and you can't see it. So make sure that if you are in the path of Tropical Storm Lura and you're going to be getting into some of the very heavy rainfall, that you are very careful as to what to expect. Now, so far this hurricane season has been hyperactive. It's been well advertised by the National Hurricane Center and also by several other forecasting groups. Just so that you know, we're currently forecasting this to be twice the normal activity. And that could give us all the way to 24 separate named systems. By the way, we only have a name list that has 21 names in it. We don't use Q, U, X, Y, and Z, which means we could have to use our contingency plan, which is to go into the Greek alphabet if we run out of names. Marco was earlier this week. We've long forgot about Marco. Marco's problem was the circulation center, which is here, was separated from all the, the convection. But that is not the case with Laura. And it is pronounced Laura, not Laura. 
Lura. Uh, you look at the pronunciation guide, it's pronounced Lura. Well, as it currently sits as a category three strength hurricane, this is just a snapshot I grabbed just before I started speaking today. And it is a powerful hurricane and it is forecast to go right toward the border between Louisiana and Texas. It will then move through Arkansas and eventually end up over in the Ohio River Valley before exiting over there in the mid-Atlantic. We are expecting wind speeds at landfall to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 130 plus miles an hour, which would keep it at category three, possibly borderline category four. But in this entire area, we could have gusts that get up to tropical storm strength, so up upwards of 70 miles an hour. After that, take a look at the path of the heaviest rainfall from Laura, where we're expecting in through here maybe upwards of 10 inches of rain. It then cuts across parts of southern Missouri, southern Illinois, getting into Tennessee and Kentucky. Now, meanwhile, while all that's happening, we still have storms running through parts of the midsection of the United States. But I want to show you another view of it here. This is the probability of getting at least four inches of rainfall as Laura comes in. So the probability very high. Problem, we are cutting corn down here. We are also working on rice in through parts of Arkansas, and this rain and wind is not welcome. It's going to be doing a lot of damage to the crops in that area. Pulling it all together, over the next week, you can see where our storms are going to be north. You can see where the storms coming in on Monday are going to be, and also Lura out ahead of all of this. There could be a pocket in through here that sees much more scattered uh, storms, and unfortunately, that is the same area that we have been concerned about with the drier conditions as of late. So talking about those storms, see the three maps across the top? That's today on the upper left, tomorrow in the top center, and then uh, the day here on, on Friday in the top right. That's where the Storm Prediction Center is concerned most about severe weather. And as you see in the animation, as Laura comes up, look at the storms run the periphery of this. See right there going through the day on Friday, cutting across this uh, part of the, uh, of the Corn Belt here. We've got a lot more strong storms still to deal with. Now, as we work our way toward the end of my talk here, where are we going in the forecast? Well, as you can see in the GFS and also in the European, we're bringing in troughs in the midsection of the country. By day 10, there's a pretty well-established trough in this area. And it seems as though as we even go out to day 15, that the atmosphere is not necessarily reloading with a big ridge in the mid part of the United States. What's the interpretation of that? Well, when you think about the flow pattern here between our two major modeling systems, there's some differences. But what they both agree on right now is that this corridor in through here could be wet into week two, which is the first week of September. So we're gonna have to watch for increased thunderstorm activity inside of the wedges I just drew there as we get into the first week of September. Please keep that in mind because some of the area that I've got inside there has been very dry as of late. Now let's talk temperatures. This map shows you what percent of the way we've made it to getting 2,500 GDUs. Anywhere that you see white, we're surpassed. We've surpassed 2,500 GDUs since planting. And anywhere that you see the green shading, that's where we've still got some uh, room to go here. So parts of the Dakotas, only 70 to 80% of the way toward 2,500 GDUs until you get to southern South Dakota. Well, temperatures today, another scorcher for part of the Corn Belt. You can see the influence, though, of Laura down here. And as I play this forward, watch as you go into Thursday. Here's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So the first cool down comes this weekend for this section of the country. Texas, you're just hot. Don't just get used to it. It's going to stay that way. And as we get a look at this into Monday and Tuesday, our next big shot at cooler air comes through. Those are the troughs that I just showed you. From there, let's look at the 6 to 10 day forecast. Much cooler 
in through this area. As you can see, still hot in Texas, hot in California. And even going out to the 11 to 15 day forecast, a little bit different here. The European model bringing in much cooler air here, keeping the heat west. The GFS not quite as far to the south in the advancement of that cooler air, but still that's our longer term look. Keeping on this idea of thinking about temperatures, for September 9th through the 15th, let's look over here at the uh, the CFS model and temperatures. Still trying to keep it cool in this part of the United States, cooler than average with the heat running up the West Coast. And the model's just hanging on to that all the way here to September 22nd. So it does not appear that this September is gonna be really, really warm compared to average. None of this is an indicator of an early frost, by the way. None of it is. Don't think that, all right? But it's just seeing a little bit cooler than average weather. European model says sees the same thing through week three, but it begins to moderate a bit more into week four. And you're probably going, Eric, why don't you talk more about precipitation? That's because right now these two models are not showing strong precipitation signals that I think are going to be really robust in the forecast. It is very difficult to forecast precipitation amounts beyond about seven days. And the ultimate wild card in all of this is tropical cyclone activity. Like Laura, they could come up here, sneak in, and cause major problems that we may not be able to see more than five to seven days in advance. Well, my last few minutes, let's talk about bigger picture. We've been watching a weak La Nina develop all summer. It's finally there. And as we notice over the next 15 days, see these blues in here? That indicates stronger trade winds in this area. And you have to have strong trade winds in that area to get a La Nina. So for the months of September, October, November, we are seeing La Nina conditions continuing to form. While it's still warm in the North Pacific and still warm where our hurricanes form, that La Nina seems to be a robust signal. So what does that mean for September, October, November? At this point, it's going to be wet, possibly wetter than average in the Northwest. But this area, near average precip, maybe drier than average. Wild card could be anything coming out of the tropics, though, which these models will be unable to resolve. Don't forget, the peak of the hurricane season is still two weeks away from us. It's September the 10th. So we always have those tropical systems to be worrying about. But there's good multi-model support for this. That was the European you just saw. Look at that. That's the Northwest showing up wet. And you see right down here showing up dry. So thinking about that moving forward, that's a critical piece. Where's the warmth going to be? The models are advertising warmer conditions west, and that's how things seem to be shaping up as we get into the month of September, October, November. One last thing before I give you a quick international update for Brazil, then we'll wrap it up. October 18, extremely wet for the Corn Belt. October 19, extremely wet. Two entirely different scenarios. 18 had a high here and a high there. And the flow came around just like that and met right in the middle. In here, 300 to 1,000% of normal rainfall. 19, deep trough came in repeatedly here out of the northwest, brought plenty of moisture out ahead of it, extremely wet across a big section of the country there. And as a result of that, we had a late harvest anyway, plus a big frost event that happened in mid-October and another one at the end of October, which cut this crop down early. Here's the last couple things I want to show you. I'm going to zip ahead. I'm going to show you these maps right here, okay? Let's talk about South America. Remember this. Brazil is currently only farming 8% of its arable land. We expect an expansion in Brazil of 3.5 million acres, possibly more this year. That's 132 million metric tons soybean crop. But notice this. With that La Nina developing, the concerns can be that this area in through here early in the season could be drier than normal. Okay, drier than normal early in the season. 
Now, we already know that things are dry there. And if we look at the forecast through September, take a look at this. I know I'm going fast, but take a look. This is the forecast for September precipitation anomalies just released yesterday. It appears as though Brazil's northern growing area here is going to have a drier start to the season. What does that mean? That means no early planting of soybeans. They may plant them on time, maybe delayed, but no early planting. And that's an important first clue about what the upcoming growing season is going to look like for South America. Now, where they can plant this crop is down south. They already are allowed to be planting from Paraná to Rio Grande do Sul their first season of corn, first season corn. But remember, first season corn only makes up about 20% of their total corn production. And they're not planting any of it right now because it snowed there two days ago in that same area. So it's still too cold to get going. I've got 930 on the dot. So with that, I'll turn it right back over to the organizers. And again, thank you for your time today. Looking for more great insights and education? Visit agweb.com slash field days on demand for more content from Farm Journal Field Days.